All right, good morning, gathering folks. We're glad you're here. Um, I'm here not with Bob, but with Kate. Yes, so we actually had a little bit of an incident last week um, with Bob's wife, Carrie's health. And if you've been following along, this is part three of a sermon series that we're doing on Psalm 91. And Bob had been sharing with us um, through the lens of what had been happening in Carrie's life and what her story was and how the Lord used Psalm 91 to really teach him as he's gone through that time of trial. And it turns out that um, last Saturday, Carrie actually had a couple of seizures as a result of an infection and was hospitalized for a couple of days. So that kind of put the Kimball family into an uproar. So uh, they are not with us this week. So you get JJ and me instead. All right, thanks very much. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful to you for your protection and for your salvation and the way that you always take care of us, God, when we cannot um, understand or know uh, what or why you're doing things or why you allow things to happen or um, why things like diseases and, and all that happen to us, God. Uh, we can trust you and we know that you do care and that you do love us. We're grateful for that. Lord, as we um, open your word today, we pray that you will just speak to our hearts, um, that we will deliver the message that uh, your people need to hear, and God, that our, our hearts would be softened and our lives would be enriched. Thank you for being our God and our King and our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So this section, um, the, the thesis of this, and I think it's going to be a two-part series. Or to two more to end this, uh, finish this up. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to contrast Psalm 91, which was written by Moses uh, under certain circumstances, right? And then we're going to look at Psalm 31, which was written by King David in a mm -hmm. very different set of circumstances. The uh, challenges that they faced and the um, trust that they had in the Lord and the hope that they had and God was virtually identical, but their situations were were vastly different. Mm -hmm. So this the Bible includes a major theme throughout the Bible of pain, grief, sorrow, need. Also, rescue, salvation, love, uh, blessings. Right, but there is still a the compare and contrast. Yeah, there's still that pervasive. And, you know, if you think about it, um, when our children were born, you know, the first and probably us, too, the first thing the doctor did was smack them on the rear end and make them cry. And it's like, welcome to the world. <laughs> it only gets harder from here. <laughs> so, you know, that's the way we're, we're welcomed into the world. And, and uh, you know, our lives, when you look through the biblical story, that our lives are really kind of parallel to the nation of Israel. We all go through our ups and downs. We all uh, see times of victory and times of pain. And, and uh, so what I wanna do is that one thing we've been struggling with is that this, you know, we're in a, in a time of pandemic right now. And Psalm 91 is known in the, in the Hebrew uh, philosophies as the plague song, right? right? And, and so how is it so upbeat and how does it make these promises of you will not be harmed, you know, while 10,000 around you fall, 
uh, you will not be harmed. How does it, how do you set that up? Mm-hmm. And, and how does that ring true within the lives of people who are going through difficult things? And, and you know, Bob and Carrie were such a great example of this. And we should have said that Carrie's doing fine, that she's back home from the hospital and she's doing important. okay. That important piece of information there. Yeah, she came back yesterday and uh, oh, you saw her on her bicycle. Day before yesterday and they were out <laughs> riding their bikes on the trails. So she's, she's doing great again. We're praising the Lord for that. So um, the main thing, we, we've talked about previously that Moses wrote this. So when would Moses have written this? Well, the, the time in his life where he was a prophet, it started with God basically coming to him as a burning bush mm-hmm. and then God using him to rescue Egypt, uh, rescue the Israelites out of Egypt, mm-hmm. right? And then did he make it to the promised land? Never did. Yeah, what, what happened? He got to see it, right? But he didn't get to go in. So all of that, and that was 40 years, right? So it's, if Moses is the author, which that's what's believed, then uh, this would have been in the context of Moses' walk with God where he's daily, you know, in the tent of meeting with God and God is right there like physically in his presence. So he has a, he has a different, uh, I, I would say, that uh, when we look at faith, for example, faith is the evidence of, of what is not seen, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I would pose that maybe Moses didn't have an awful lot of faith because God had to convince him over and over, I will do this thing. Um, so when we, when we look at um, Moses' reality, in, in his context, um, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household, right? Mm-hmm. So what was going on with Egypt at that time? Slavery. Yeah, so there was slavery and the Pharaoh had ordered all the baby boys to, to be, be killed. murdered, right? Mm-hmm. And so Moses was rescued. He was drawn out of the water. He was raised in Pharaoh's household. So while all of his people, now I, I do believe that he understood himself to be a Hebrew. I don't mm-hmm. think that that was a big secret. Mm-hmm. He was raised by Pharaoh's daughter, but he grew up in the king's household, the Pharaoh's household. So he definitely had a heart for his people. It's clear in his actions that he had a heart for the struggle and the hurt of his people. But he wasn't out there making bricks, right? Right. So he had a different perspective on that. Um, and when when God shows up in Moses' life, if you recall Moses took things into his own hands. That's right. right. So he he saw uh, an Egyptian abusing one mm-hmm. of the Hebrew slaves. Moses killed him. Right. Moses always saw himself as, as the rescuer, a rescuer, somebody to draw out That's and right. rescue his people. We like to say he was the first abolitionist. There you go. So but he didn't go about it very well. Well, God created him for that. And so in his in his own way, he was acting out the purpose that God had created him for, but he was not doing it God's way, right? So he's banished. For an e- he has to flee from Egypt so that Pharaoh doesn't kill him. Right. And so he finds himself out in, the, out in the desert. Middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden, here's this burning bush, right? So this is the, 
Now we've had uh, Adam and Eve walking in the garden with God. We had Enoch taken up into heaven. Enoch didn't die, mm -hmm. right? He just became with God. Mm -hmm. um, but other than that, everybody else has died and there's been a lot of angels and, and visitations and, and things. But this is when God meets with Abraham and says, my name is God Almighty. My name is Yahweh, right? So this is a different thing. And so, wait a um, second. You said Abraham. You I'm sorry, Moses. Moses. <laughs> Just <laughs> making sure. That's why she's here. Um, so we have a very different. Uh, we have a very different interaction with Moses. So when we look in uh, Exodus three eleven uh, through like four one, this is this is the section where God is actually speaking to Moses from the burning bush, and. There's there's three statements in here, Exodus 3.11, Exodus 3.13, and Exodus 4.1. Um, can you read Exodus 3.11 to me? Sure. But Moses protested, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? Okay, read Exodus 3.13. First three words only. But Moses protested. <laughs> Exodus 4.1. But Moses protested again. What if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? So there's there's some challenges here, right? Moses protested. Moses protested. Moses protested. Even when God gave him the command, you're going to go and talk to Pharaoh. He's like, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Why would the people listen to me? And then he makes up excuses, right? Well, I don't speak good. And, and God says to him, who made mouths? God's saying, I know, I know everything about you. I made your mouth. I will, and he said, I love the way it's put in some of the translation translations. God says to Moses, I will be with your mouth. <laughs> but Moses is just, this is why I say that there's there's a faith gap here. Um, what did God do to show Moses? There were some miracles happen there that to God is just saying, look, Moses, I'm going to do this thing. God showed off just a little bit for Moses, didn't he? Yeah. So what was, he had a staff. What happened with that? So he threw down the staff on the ground because God said, throw down your staff. And the staff turned into a snake. And then Moses sees the snake and runs away. <laughs> That's a great amount of faith there, right? <laughs> so. And remember the setup for this, the burning bush, hello, and, and God says, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. So, you know, Moses clearly understands that he is the, in the presence of a holy God, yet this snake now distracts him enough that he takes off running. Barefoot. Barefoot, because he took off his shoes, right? Um, so, then, so then God says, pick up the stick. You know, God turns the stick back into a, or a snake back into a stick and says, pick up the stick, right? No. <laughs> what did God say? God says, pick it up. And he has to pick up the, the staff, this, the what? snake, and yeah. then it turns back into a staff. So Moses had to do his part That's before right. God completed the miracle. God said, pick up the snake. And, and if anybody remember, what's the, the, the uh, animal guy's name? 
Jeff Corwin. Jeff Corwin, you remember him? And Irwin. he was always no. Jeff Steve Irwin. Irwin. Steve Irwin. <laughs> and he would pick up the snakes and be like, "Oh, that's a beauty, that one, Lady Killer." Um, so he'd have these snakes, right? But he would always he would trap them, trap their heads with like a bush or something, and then he'd pick them up by the head. That's the only way to safely pick up a snake because you have to control its head. Well, God tells Moses, pick the snake up by the tail. And I got to think even, I mean, back then, these were very intelligent people. This is the society of people that was actually building the pyramids. They weren't dumb. So they clearly, Moses had to know that you don't pick up snakes by the tail. Oh, glad God didn't ask me to do that. <laughs> but he did it, right? So right. Moses then trusts God. Mm-hmm. He picks up the snake by the tail. It turns back into a staff. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that was really feared back then was leprosy, right? Mm-hmm. And so God asked Moses to put his hand inside his cloak. And what happens? Pulls his hand back out, and it's covered with leprosy. Yeah. And leprosy was the big scary thing of the day. I mean, it was the worst thing that could happen. Yeah. I mean, especially in the Hebrew culture, I mean, you were completely... Uh, discarded. A social outcast. Yeah, you were were driven out. You were quarantined to the point where you couldn't even live with everybody else. So um, then God says, Moses, put your hand back in your cloak. And what do you think Moses is thinking now? Well, last time I got leprosy. (laughs) What's it going to be this time? (laughs) But he does it, right? And he draws it back and it's clean. It's all new. So you know, God was, was, was showing Moses that he's in control of everything. So now Moses is seeing these miracles over and over. And, and so God, when, when we look at in this context then, kind of the three, what I would consider the three parts of Psalm 91, verses 1 through 8, I believe uh, these verses, and, and let me just... I'll read through these real quick. Or Kate, you can read one through eight for us, please. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust him. For he will rescue you from every trap and protect you from deadly disease. He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His promises are your armor and protection. Do not be afraid of the terrors of the night, nor the arrow that flies in the day. Do not dread the disease that stalks in darkness, nor the disaster that strikes at midday. Though a thousand fall at your side, though ten thousand are dying around you, these evils will not touch you. Just open your eyes and see how the wicked are punished. So in Moses' context, this was clearly played out. I mean, he saw God face to face. He doubted, but God continually proved himself right there on the spot. He would say, Moses, do this thing. Mm-hmm. And when Moses obeyed, the miracle happened. He was, a, he was unique in that, other than some really key prophets and Christ, right? Mm-hmm. And then some of the apostles had similar things happened, but it wasn't just a daily, you know, that's the way we lived thing. I think Moses had the most prescribed miracles ever. You know, God always said specifically, Moses, you do this. 
Mm-hmm. And as soon as Moses did something, then God would do something even bigger. Mm-hmm. So Moses saw that again and again and again in his life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that first part, verses 1 through 8, this is Moses kind of reaffirming his own faith in God's protection. You know, that you will, if you, you will live in the shelter of his wings because Moses did, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So then the second part, verses 9 through 13, there's some if statements here. Can you read that section, please? If you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the Most High your shelter, no evil will conquer you. No plague will come near your home, for he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. You will trample upon lions and cobras, and you will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. The Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. I will reward them with a long life and give them my salvation. So my take on this is that this section is Moses speaking directly to his people. The if statements uh, are really thematic to the way Moses led his people. If you will be faithful, then God will rescue. And God demonstrated that over and over uh, as the Israelites were in the, in the desert, right? 40 years wandering in the desert, and they came into a lot of troubles. Uh, snakes in the camp and all kinds of, all kinds of things. But at the same um, time, God was feeding them every day. Fed them every day. And, and so uh, I, I think that these if statements, so we have Moses reassuring himself in part one, then the if statements are an exhortation to his people. Be right with God. Follow his commands. If you do these things, your life will go well. And God demonstrated this to the Israelites while they were in the desert over and over. And then I think part three, which would be verses 14 through 16, these are the last ones, I think these are consistent with Moses' role as a prophet to Israel because he is speaking the actual words of God. He's saying, the Lord says. And again, this is really common for Moses, right? Because he goes up to the mountain. God speaks to him. He comes and brings the word down to the people. And the people clearly could see that he was in the presence of God Um, he would go into the tent of meeting, meet with God, and when he would come out, he'd have to wear a veil because his face shone so bright of being in the presence of God. So when, when Moses would speak to people and say, God said this, it was not the same as some, you know, wacky New Age prophet saying, I got this message. I mean, it was a very, very different thing, right? Yes, because so, Moses communed with God face to face. He's the only one that we hear that about. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So read uh, in that with that thought. Read fourteen through sixteen, please. The Lord says, "I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honor them. I will reward them with a long life and give them my salvation." Okay, so I I think reading that in context, understanding Moses' life, it it kind of helps us understand this whole, uh, this psalm from a different picture from than than we would 
say if we were just the baby that got smacked on the rear end, came crying into the world and and have barely stopped crying since, right? So, um, so let's look at in that context and a couple of other things that happen um, with the people because now the people have to hear and understand this message. Um, when uh, let's see, so Moses came back with this, I guess, I guess, newfound faith because God really took him out of the requirement for faith and just showed him, look, I'm doing this. Pudge showed up. Um, but the people still needed some convincing, right? So Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, you know, this is what the Lord says, let my people go into the desert and worship him. And the, and the Pharaoh doesn't want to. So God shows Pharaoh some miracles, right? It's the snake it's Aaron's staff now turns into a snake. It eats up all the Pharaoh's snakes. So he sees this thing. Um, and then the, the Pharaoh says something. Um, wait, read Exodus 4.21 for me, please. And the Lord said to Moses, when you arrive back in Egypt, go to Pharaoh and perform all the miracles I've empowered you to do. But I will harden his heart so he will refuse to let the people go. Wait, what? <laughs> so, so God's saying, go do, go do these miracles, but it's not going to work. So, all right. But Moses obeys anyway. And then what happens? Pharaoh hardens his heart, right? Me meanwhile, so Moses is good with this. Moses and Aaron are seeing all this love. But it's not so much love for the people because the, the Pharaoh, and look in Exodus uh, 5.17, this was Pharaoh's answer back to Moses. Right. So, I mean, they weren't feeling the love because as soon as Moses started doing these miracles, Pharaoh got mad and he said, I'm going to make everything worse for you. Right. <laughs> right so right. he he doubled their load. He said, I'm not going to give you straw for making your bricks. You're going to have to go find that on your own, source your own you know, product in order to, you know, serve me as a slave and continue making these bricks. And and so even worse things were happening. So the, right. the Israelites were like, you know, some help you are. <laughs> what are you doing? Right. And I'm sure Moses was like, okay, these are the people that I'm supposed to rescue. You know, they're just like, how do I do this? Yeah, and they, they hate won't me. Be, they won't be rescued. And so in Exodus 5.17, Pharaoh shouted, you're just lazy. That's why you're saying, let us go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Now get back to work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still produce your full quota of bricks. So life gets hard, right? Harder. Way worse. So then God has to bring his people also into faith. Mm. So as we study uh, the, the way the plagues worked, um, you know, there were something like 10 plagues, right? Let's see. Blood, the plague of blood, Frogs, gnats, flies, death of livestock, festering boils, which sounds awfully fun, uh, hail, locusts, and then death of Egypt's firstborn. So that's nine, right? So those were the plagues. Um, so God demonstrated, and, and I'm, as I've read, the, the plagues represented God's sovereignty over really every aspect of life. And a lot of these things, um, God... Uh, there, there were 
Egyptian gods that were represented by these various things. Um, the frogs, the flies, the, all mm-hmm. these various mm-hmm. things. And, um, and the, the blood, blood was used in their, you know, various religious rituals. So God was showing, I have sovereignty. Oh, and the River Nile had a bunch of imagery behind it too. He turns the Nile to blood. So God has taken all their imagery and saying, look, I control all of this. So um, the last plague then was the Passover. And this is where, you know, that's where we have the Passover feast. And God gave the Egyptian, the Israelites a command, you know, take the... This is where we see just the really, really clear imagery of, of Christ as a sacrificial lamb, the lamb's blood over your door. And that's how the Passover, um, the angel knew, the angel of death knew to pass over those homes. Mm-hmm. And I'm so sure that was the 10th plague. I know we only have nine here on our list, but I probably I missed one missing somewhere. Yeah. Anyway. Thank you. All right. Um, so... The, the, the question then is, um, so we've got the Israelites. They now believe Pharaoh is fed up with all the plagues and he allows his people to leave. So the, the big famous Exodus story is them crossing the Red Sea, right? Mm-hmm. And then Pharaoh's army getting swallowed up within that. Right. Um, and that really kind of completed their, uh, I guess, that part of their story, right? Mm-hmm. So there's when we look at these if statements in Psalm 91, and we look at our, our lives overall, we look at this story, then the question, I, I think I see like two questions in here. One is, who exactly does God protect and who does God rescue? And I think um, the other question would be, do our actions of faith really matter? So Elisha, um, there's a story in 2 Kings uh, 13, 15 through 19. And the background of this is that Elisha um, is on his deathbed. And uh, King Jehoash... Elisha being another famous prophet... Yes. So King Jehoash, king of Israel, comes to Elisha, and this is like Elisha's last prophecy and last blessing. So would you mind uh, reading 2 Kings 13, 15 through 19, please? Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows, and he did so. Take the bow in your hand, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Then he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. Elisha said to him, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. So this is an example, an Old Testament example, of how the actions that we take in faith really do matter. Hmm. 
Uh, there's a there's a couple of great uh, New Testament stories about this as well. You know, famously the centurion came and asked for uh, Christ uh, to come heal his child, child. Mm-hmm. and and uh, he you know Christ says this is what I mean about faith because the centurion said. You just say the word. He said, I'm a man under authority. I say, come and they come. I say, go and they go. Mm -hmm. And I know that you have authority. So if you just say the word, I know my child will be saved, be healed. And and Jesus says, this is the faith I'm talking about. So in that context, faith, the act of faith made a difference, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I want to be clear. What I'm saying is, is through this message is not that our acts of faith don't matter. Can you read uh, Mark 9, 20 through 24? Then they brought him to, him to him, meaning Jesus. And when they saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, again, he being Jesus, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Often he has thrown... He has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out to him and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So this is the story of the deaf-mute boy. And, uh, you know, his his parents, all of us who are parents know how distressing it can be. To it have. was perhaps an epileptic. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the kid has some challenges, right? Mm-hmm. And you know how much compassion parents have for their children. I mean, we've been through that. I'm sure a lot of our congregation have been through issues with their children or the parents or other loved ones. Mm-hmm. And, and um you know, this is a case where this guy didn't, he recognized in himself that I don't, you know, I don't have that kind of faith. And he says, Lord, I believe, help me with that, my unbelief. Um, so the, to me, it's not just like there's the, the, there's the faith and action that Moses had, and uh, which were like really God immediately concretely saying, showing and then doing and then there's the next level of maybe the centurion where he believes and God Christ does and he just trusts that God does and then he shows back up at home and his child's well mm-hmm. and then there's this guy who who says to Christ if you can and Jesus says what do you mean if I can mm-hmm. and and that now the guy says okay I believe but help me with my unbelief. And I think we fall, we all fall into those different categories. Um, with regards to the Israelites, I think that when we need to look at circumstances under which God chooses not to rescue, because clearly that happens. Um, God takes a long view. These Israelites have been the the prophecy said 400 years. They ended up being in slavery 430 years, mm-hmm. right? They ended up being in Egypt somewhere around 600 years. Um, do you think that they weren't crying out to God before that? Like how many mm-hmm. generations? God said there would be four generations there, right? 
So we had generations of people that longed to go home and longed to get out of slavery and they were crying out to God, but God had these known preconditions. His, he took the long view. His story was bigger than these people. Mm. And, and so his conditions were, when, when we read Genesis uh, 15, 12 through 16, this is where God is telling Abraham, this is what's gonna happen to your people. And it was six, 700 years before um, so God says that the slavery is going to last until the sin of the Amorites reaches its height. And then he had a num another set of requirements, the prerequisites. Uh, there, was a, there was a required number of people. You know, your children, he says to Abraham, your children are going to outnumber the stars in the sky, right? Mm -hmm. Well, this land of Canaan, you can't just occupy it and take care of it. Never mind that God can conquer battles, as Jonathan says, with many or with few. Mm -hmm. But to actually live in the land, you know, that was even an issue after all the Israelites arrived in Canaan and, and they had to like divide up and all right, you take care of this part, you take care of this part. So there was a population requirement that God wanted. And then he also wanted them to be basically loot the Egyptians. Uh, it says that he tells Abraham, God tells Abraham, you're going to take the wealth of the Egyptians. You're going to go into this promised land, into this land of Canaan with great wealth. Well, these are slave people. But God accomplished this. And that wealth, you know, the Bible tells us that when they left, the Egyptians after that last plague were so anxious to get rid of them. They loaded them up. They gave them everything. Gold, furs, all mm -hmm. kinds of fabrics, all kinds of things. And those items were used when you read later uh, the building of the tabernacle. God used those items. The people just gave it to the mm -hmm. building of the tabernacle and the gold and the spices and the skins and the fabrics and all of these things were used to create God's tabernacle. So God had a very much longer view than what was going on with his, you know, think of maybe the third generation of slaves. They got to live their entire life mm -hmm. in slavery and they never saw that victory. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that God didn't care about them? No, it means that God was taking the long view and he was doing what was going to make salvation right for generation upon generation of people, right? Mm -hmm. And he knew that their ultimate salvation was on him anyway, and that this what's in this temporal life is not the end. So we're going to wrap that up here. Um, we're going to come back next week. We're going to look at Psalm 31, which is written by David under, a not this David, King David, um, under a completely different, different set of circumstances. And we're going to uh, tell a story about our friend Dana, who ended up in um, Afghanistan in prison under the Taliban and how this particular passage really uh, ministered to her during that time. Mm -hmm. So let me close us in prayer. Father, we're grateful to you for this church, for these people, for your stories, for the way that you laid out this world for us, the way that you teach us through all things. And God, that we can live uh, fearlessly trusting you, knowing that it is your big plan, your long view of history and of mankind, 
in our relationship with you, God, you look out for the the big right, the big strategic good right. And you have done, you have won the victory already. And we just praise you for Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made that you would, um, through which you rescue us all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.